you would please open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 16. Came through chapter 15 last week, and we saw God coming to Abram and making this unilateral covenant with him. And he had made a promise before, but now he confirmed it by passing between these animal parts in the the culturally appropriate manner and Abram knew exactly what this meant. You know, us as 21st century readers, we may not immediately know what this means, this covenant practice, but Abram knew exactly what it meant. And he knew that God was the one who was creating this covenant with him. There was nothing that was needed on Abram's part, just belief. And God took all of the responsibility, as it were, on himself. He said, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And that's ultimately what is, what is in the pipeline right now. And that's what we're about to see in the world happen. Now we come to chapter 16. Chapter 16 is full of practical application for us. As husbands, as wives, as followers of Christ, as students of the Bible. But even deeper than that, we're going to see a theological application of chapter 16 and how it relates to the old covenant and the law juxtaposed with the new covenant in Christ. Faith believes the promises of God. Hope anticipates those promises of God, but it's patience that waits for the fulfillments of the promises of God. And Abram is still waiting for the heir that God had already promised him. And here at the beginning of chapter 16, Abram is about 85 years old. So he is getting up there. And Sarai, his wife, is 75 years old. Years and years have gone by since the first mention of this promise of a child. And I'm sure they're feeling the effects of that age. They're starting to come to the hard truth that Sarai's childbearing years are about up. And it seems that this was their conclusion because we see this plan that they devised. It does involve Abram, but it does not involve Sarai. Genesis 16, let's read through the first four verses together. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please, go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai, Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. What an unfortunate trail of circumstances. But it's all avoidable if 
Abram and Sarai had just sat in the will of God and not pushed. They had not acted out in the flesh. And we'll see how that works out for all three of them. And all three of them could have handled this situation better than they did. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Now, it's interesting. This chapter shows the second major mistake that Abram makes. But it's connected to the first. There's this sort of compounding effect of his mistakes. And unfortunately, I think a lot of us can relate to that. Remember in Genesis 12, there was a famine in the land of Canaan. And that famine pushed Abram and his household for all intents and purposes, out of the will of God and into the land of Egypt. God had called him to go to Canaan. He didn't tell him to go away from Canaan, to go to Egypt, but he did. His first mistake was going to Egypt in the first place, because that's not where God had called him. And after lying about Sarai's relation to him, Pharaoh gives Abram all these gifts you know, including donkeys, camels, all this livestock, and male and female servants. And among those servants that leave Egypt with Abram and Sarai was this woman, Hagar. You know, we tend to make all of these mistakes in life. And we also tend to see those mistakes compound on each other. And Hagar is a prime example of this. She comes out of Egypt with her new master and mistress, Abram and Sarai, and she's not the problem, right? We don't see Hagar being the problem here, but it's the way that Abram and Sarai treat her and what happens from those bad choices. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. How right she was. You know, she was absolutely spot on up to that point. The Lord had constrained her from bearing children. It seems as if God is waiting to give them a child until it would be actually impossible naturally. And Hebrews 11 seems to justify that idea that God intentionally waited. So there was no doubt that this conception of Isaac was in fact a miracle. Sarai evidently feels that she has already passed the age for natural childbirth. But Abram still has not. See, his childbearing years are a little longer than hers. So she seeks, Sarai seeks another way to fulfill God's promise to her husband. And she does so in the flesh. She's acting like God's little helper. That's not how we want to approach these things. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. This is the solution that Sarai comes up with. And it's laughable to us looking at it on the other side of it because we know what's going to happen. 
But Abram and Sarai have been waiting for years upon years, and they're seeing their lives behind them in the rearview mirror. Do note, too, that this was legal at the time. This practice of taking a handmaid and letting your husband marry her, that was legal. If a wife was barren, she could give a maidservant to her husband to act as sort of a surrogate on her behalf. And Hagar's relationship with Abram was that of a concubine, a secondary wife, if you will. The first wife would have retained a special place, a special status to her husband, and she could actually exercise authority over the other wives. And we do have reason to believe that Hagar, even though it says that she was a wife of Abram, she still only enjoyed a lower social class than Sarah did. First, Hagar was, at this time, a legal extension of Sarai as her maidservant. She would certainly not be greater than her master. Second, Abram married a woman named Keturah after the passing of Sarah. Genesis 25.1 says that Abram again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And the word used there for wife is the usual isha in the Hebrew, which can be used in different contexts to mean wife or woman. There is typically a different word used for concubine, different than isha, and that word for concubine is also used to describe keturah in 1 Chronicles one thirty-two. I promise we're going to bring this all back around. Although we have the word Isha, wife, used to describe Hagar's relationship with Abram, we know that word encompasses her general designation as a wife. But the word for concubine is a more specific term. And since both of those terms are used to describe Keturah's relationship to Abram, we can basically lump in concubine with wife. So when it's saying, bear with me, that Hagar was Abram's wife, Isha, that can include the relationship of a concubine. Okay? She does not share equal status as Sarai, Abram's first wife, even though she was given to Abram as a wife. And the last reason we can be sure that Hagar held lower status than Sarai is this. Sarai's son Isaac, the son of the promise, was the legal heir to his father's inheritance, not the firstborn son of Hagar. Even though Isaac was not born first, he was the legal heir of Abram's inheritance. So after Sarai pitched this idea to Abram, it says that Abram heeded the voice of Sarai, 
he listened to her. And it is kind of hard for us to tell what kind of suggestion this was on Sarai's part. You know, sometimes your wife will lay open a trap for you. She'll make a suggestion that she knows sounds enticing to you, but it's not actually what she really wants you to do. And she just wants to see which one you'll pick, right? Very exciting game. (laughs) Is that what Sarai was doing with her husband here? We don't know. It's hard to tell from just the text. But we do know what the right answer would have been. Honey, we just need to wait on God's timing. We don't need to rush into this, try to play God's little helper. That's not our our job. Although it was legal, that doesn't mean it was right. And that's something we need to keep in mind today. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right or permissible by God, especially in Ohio. But for some reason, impatience probably, Abram heeds the voice of his wife and follows along with this plan she's laid out before him. Gentlemen, it's not always a bad thing to listen to your wife. In fact, many times it's a good thing. But it did get Abram in trouble. And it got Adam, along with the whole human race, in trouble back in the garden. But it's not always bad. In Genesis 21.12, God tells Abram to listen to his wife. And this is the tricky part. When do you know when to listen? I can't give all of the answers, but I will say, wives and husbands, if your spouse is telling you to sin and leading you into sin, it is safe to say you should not listen to them. Too often, we don't see the ways God is working, and we try to help the situation along. You know, give the donkey a little kick in the rear. You know, get things moving again. We try to be God's helpers, but we always end up working in the flesh when we try to do that. When what God really wants of us is just to be patient and to wait in his will, trust his timing. There's certainly this practical lesson for us here. So this is a plan that Sarai thinks will work out beautifully. And then verse 3, Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Did it work? Did the plan work? Hagar conceived, but then there's trouble. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. It seems like it took no time at all. As soon as she saw that she had conceived, Hagar that is, 
Sarai became despised in the eyes of Hagar. She must have looked at Sarah and knew the problem with her and her husband's infertility lie with her. Abram obviously didn't have any problem. Sarai, in Hagar's mind, must have been inferior in some way. And at this time, infertility was really looked down upon. And Hagar despised her mistress. Now look at how Sarai responds to this situation. You know, this is how she does it, but I'm sure that we would never do anything like this. Then Sarai said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. She blame shifts. She puts the blame for her plan on her husband. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. Let my wrong be upon you. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. Why are you looking at me? I have nothing to do with this. I just did what you told me to do. Do what you will with her. Both Abram and Sarai handled this situation poorly. Sarai shifts the blame to Abram, but instead of accepting responsibility for his family, as he should have, Abram shirks that responsibility, and he delegates it back to Sarah. She's your maid. Do what you will with her. You know, it's not my responsibility. And in this case, he failed to take the lead spiritually in this situation. And there are consequences for that. Hagar ends up being treated harshly by Sarai. Remember, even though Hagar was Abram's wife, his concubine, Sarai still had authority over her maidservant, Hagar. And it says, when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she, that is Hagar, fled from Sarai's presence. Hagar has had enough. She has had enough of this unfair treatment from Sarai, maybe from Abram too, but that's not clearly said. She leaves town, and she comes to a spring of water on the way to Shur, which was on the way to Egypt, back to her home. Nobody handles this pressure well. You know, Sarai blame shifts. Abram shirks his responsibility as a leader of this house, and Hagar flees the whole situation. Probably the most remarkable thing, at least to me, about this whole ordeal is that at no point does God say, all right, I'm recasting these characters. There is something wrong with the casting here. Where's Melchizedek? You know, maybe we'll make him the guy, you know? He seemed like a good one. No, he, he doesn't do that. He's made promises 
And there is no way that those promises will go unfulfilled. He's so faithful to see them through, even to this cast of misfits that struggle all along the way. And this is one of those areas that I can really relate to all of them. Verse 7, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, calls her by name, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. Now we're introduced to the angel of the Lord. He'll be mentioned many more times in Genesis and in the rest of the Old Testament, but there are no mentions of this angel of the Lord after the incarnation of Christ. After Christ is born on earth, there are no more mentions of this angel of the Lord. So who is this angel of the Lord? That's the big question. In several places in Scripture, he's identified with Yahweh, with the Father. In these instances, it would appear that this figure is spoken of as Jehovah himself. He speaks with great authority as of God himself. And I'll list off some of these references um, for if you want to jot them down. I don't know. There's a lot of them. But Genesis 16, 13, 22, 11, and 12, 31, 11, 31, 13, 48, 16, Judges 6, 11, also 6, 16, and 6, 22, Judges 13, 22 through 23, and Zechariah 3, 1 through 2. And again, these are the instances where this angel of the Lord is identified with Yahweh. But there are also instances when this figure is portrayed as distinct from Yahweh. We'll find examples of this in Genesis 24, 7. 2 Samuel 24.16 and Zechariah 1.12. So how can we reconcile this angel of the Lord being unified with Jehovah, yet distinct from him? That's really not a trick question like it may sound. This title, angel of the Lord, may refer to a Christophany. That is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ as the second member of the Trinity. And here's some more references for you if you care to investigate. Genesis 18, 1 and 2. Genesis 19, 1. Numbers 22, 22. Judges 2, 1 through 4. Judges 5, 23. And Zechariah 12, 8. And in a lot of, in that last little list, you'll very clearly see how this angel of the Lord is tied to Jesus. Very interesting if you want to undertake that study. And if it is Christ, 
then he could certainly be identified with Yahweh, God, yet he would also be distinct from him. And it would explain how the angel of the Lord speaks with the authority of God himself. And I would suggest that Hagar here is being visited by Christ, pre-incarnate at this spring as she flees Sarai. So here is this slave woman who's been displaced from her home in Egypt, and she's mistreated by her master and mistress, and the angel of the Lord appears to her. This is the first time in the Bible we find the angel of the Lord. And he doesn't appear to Abram. He doesn't appear to Sarai. He doesn't appear to a patriarch. He appears to an abused woman, an Egyptian, the broken one. You may be sitting there thinking, what in the world would the Lord ever want with my life? I'm no one special. Yet here is the creator of the universe stooping down to comfort Hagar. And that's exactly what he does. He comforts her. A spring of water is mentioned in verse 7. And it's called a well in verse 14. All throughout the Bible, springs, also translated fountains, and wells speak of God's provision and the refreshment that he provides. And the first time we hear of a fountain in the Bible, it's in relation to Hagar. In verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for multitude. Now, Hagar is worried. She, I'm sure she's beside herself. She doesn't know what her future holds. She doesn't know what's going to happen to her unborn son. As a future mother, an expecting mother, she's worried, as any of us would be. And it seems from other scripture that Abram also cares about his future son, Ishmael. But here, the Lord reassures Hagar that her son will have countless descendants. That was a blessing of blessings. Reassuring from the Lord. Though this isn't the son that God promised to Abram, God does grant to Hagar that her son would have many descendants. Though Abram and Sarai messed up, they really blew it. I mean, they really messed this thing up. Even though they did that, God still demonstrates 
his grace. And he stoops down to Hagar and reassures her in this awful circumstance. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Well, after a reassuring word, I'm not sure what you would call that. Besides truth. The name Ishmael means God hears. And the Lord explains that in verse 11. Because the Lord has heard your affliction. That's why you'll name him Ishmael. But isn't that comforting? The Lord has heard your affliction. Psalm 40 verse 1 says, I waited patiently for the Lord And he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He does hear us. He hears you. And he cares about you. In the middle of the desert, he appears to Hagar at her lowest point. And, you know, we're talking about Sarai helping God in the flesh. And it reminds me of an often quoted but untrue saying God helps those who helps themselves. Is that really what God wants you to do? Does he want you to try to help yourself? Maybe more accurately, God helps those who have come to the end of themselves. And Hagar certainly appears to have come to the end of herself. The first Christophany in the Bible, and he appears to her. You shall call his name Ishmael. Ishmael is the first child recorded in the Bible who was named before they were born. Isaac is the second. He shall be a wild man. I think my mother heard that when she was pregnant with Cheney. I can only say that because he's not here this morning. This is a reference, this, just the word wild, is a reference to the wild donkeys that had lived in in that time. And that's how the word wild is translated the vast majority of the times it appears in Scripture. It's translated wild donkey. So he's literally saying he shall be a wild donkey of a man. These wild donkeys that lived in the desert were considered to be clever because they could survive where nothing else could. But they were also considered foolish because they were so territorial that they couldn't get along with the others. So they'd be mostly alone, roaming the desert, but very hardy and survivable. The Lord is telling Hagar that her son is going to be strong, independent, and survivable, but honoring. He'll struggle to get along with others. And a lot of what we see going on in the Middle East today is a direct result of Ishmael and Isaac. 
Both have Abraham's blood in their veins, but they cannot get along with each other. And it goes way, way back, further than the beginning of Islam. That's just the embodiment of this attitude. It goes way back. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. You know, a lot of the Semitic people who live in the Middle East are descended from Abram. And they still can't get along with each other. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? This woman, Hagar, who grew up in Egypt, was probably well acquainted with their pantheon of gods. And she probably retained much of her old practices as she left her home and went to be with Abram and Sarai. But there was something about this God who had appeared to her by the well that was unfamiliar. Something struck her as different than those other false gods that she had worshipped in Egypt. There's something different about him. He cares for me. She had a sense that he wasn't like the others, that he actually saw her. And this isn't just see like he had 20-20 vision. She's saying that he sees me to attend to me so that he may care for me. She's speaking to the provision that he has provided in her life. And she's realizing that this God has always been there with her, even through the low points. And he sees all of that, all the low points, all the high points, And he still cares for her. You are the God who sees. Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Be'er Lahai Roy means the well of the living one who sees me. And this is the well that we all want to drink from when we're feeling downcast or like an outsider, when we've been taken advantage of and when we've come to truly the end of ourselves. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he sees the abused woman, he sees the unborn children, and he calls them by name, Hagar. Sarai's servant. He has a plan for each of their lives. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. That tells us something important. That tells us that Abram must have believed Hagar's experience 
at least enough to consent to naming his son Ishmael. She came back, it's implied, that she came back to Abram and Sarai and she delivered the news, this story, this experience that she'd had by the well. And Abram must have believed her. And it seems that Abram decided to raise and care for Ishmael, which was finally the right thing for him to do. And in a way, it was Abram taking responsibility for his actions and finally acting as the spiritual leader of his house. Now, this isn't to say that things were perfect after this. I have no doubt that some strife between Sarai and Hagar continued, but Abram seems to be finally accepting his role in the house. You know, sin has natural consequences. Just because we are forgiven for a sin doesn't mean that we won't reap its natural consequences. And that's a hard reality that a lot of people who have grown up in mainstream Christian circles have to contend with. There are still consequences in the world for sin for doing things that are not of God's perfect plan. That doesn't mean that God has not forgiven you of those things. I'm sure that Abram, Sarai, and Hagar had to deal with the relationships that they had built. And, you know, these are all great lessons to receive from this text But it doesn't stop there with the application to our lives. This account also makes some important theological statements that we may have missed if not for Paul spelling it out for us in Galatians 4. So let's turn to Galatians 4.21 together. And that's where we'll begin to look at this. Galatians Chapter 4, starting in verse 21, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia here. He writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. So Paul begins to set up this contrast between the two sons of Abraham, one from Hagar, the servant, the other from Sarah, the free woman, of course, Ishmael and Isaac. Verse 23, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. And the word used there for symbolic is allegoreo in the Greek, which is obviously where we get our word allegory. Some translations even render this verse, which things are allegory. But please don't be confused by this word allegory. Paul regarded these characters and these events as absolutely historical. He did not interpret them 
as an allegory. He interpreted them historically, but the application he made was allegorical. Okay, so we want to make sure that we have a distinction between interpretation and application. Paul interprets the text of Genesis to be historical. He applies it in an allegorical fashion. And that's what he does so that's what he does here. For these are the two covenants. So he's going to really lay it out for us here. The one from Mount Sinai which gives birth to bondage which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. By the way, there's a nugget there. Mount Sinai was in Arabia, not the Sinai Peninsula. Right? So people who are looking in the Sinai Peninsula are a little bit misled just because of the name similarities. We'll continue. And corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. So this allegory that he's talking about refers to the two sons of Abraham and the two big covenants of God, the old covenant under the law and the new covenant under the blood of Christ. Since Abram acted out of his flesh to bring Ishmael, he will symbolize the law. But Isaac, Abraham and Sarah's son, is the son that God promised to them. Therefore, he's referred to as the son of promise. In verse 28, he writes, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. So just like Isaac was, we are the sons of promise too. We were born out of a unilateral covenant that God made with humanity. We're not talking about a natural birth, the second birth, being born again. We were born of a unilateral covenant that God made with humanity. We didn't do anything to deserve it, but God chose us. He plucked us out of our old lives and set us on a path devoted to Him. And He's bestowed on us all the blessings and the inheritance of a natural son. What the law could not do, Christ did according to the new covenant. Romans 8, verse 2 and 3 say the same thing in a different way. And this is still Paul writing. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. Where the law falls short, Christ is victorious. What the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. 
That's what we celebrate this time of year. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And I hope that it's not for the gifts. You know, the commercial side of it is ridiculous. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, my sin. Back to Genesis. Finishing up with verse 16. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Abram had left Haran, that place, his little pit stop on the way to the promised land. Remember, he was from Ur of the Chaldeans. He left with his whole family to Haran. He stayed there for a little while. When he left Haran, went down to Canaan, he was 75 years old. And now when this whole episode takes place, it's 11 years later. He's gone down to Egypt. He's come back up from Egypt, endured that famine. He's heard this remarkable promise from God several times. I think it was four times. He gets impatient, and he tries to nudge God's plan along. But what is sown in the flesh cannot be reaped in the spirit. What is sown in the flesh cannot be reaped in the spirit. Sometimes it gets uncomfortable for us to sit where God would have us. To just sit in his will. But it doesn't have to be comfortable. It can be lonely. We talked last week about the moments when we feel lonely, alone, like no one else is with us. That's the time when God can really break through. And that's the time when you can hear from him the best because there's no other noise. And now in the the times we see this week, when we've come to the end of ourself, That's when God broke through to Hagar, when she was absolutely done. She sat by the spring of water, and the Lord appeared to her in her lowest point. And he picked her up, and he sent her back on her way. And that is exactly what we have through grace. Living in grace, in many ways, is more demanding than living under the law. Because I can fall down, I can mess up, and through grace, I can approach God through his son Jesus, and I can ask for forgiveness. And by his grace, he picks me back up, puts me on my feet, and sends me in the right direction. And I have no excuse for staying down. Because it's not up to me. The hard work has already been done.
live in the reality of God's grace. You don't have to stay down. He comes to you. He will refresh you if you ask him. And he will set you on the right path. Please bow your heads with me.